Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word In this episode, we will be celebrating the communion, otherwise known as the table of the Lord, or even sometimes the Eucharist. But before we get started, let me say a few things. In this ministry, we do things a bit differently than you may be used to. In most Christian churches around the world, there's a lot of tradition that goes along with this celebration. And let me say, by the way, that includes those independent evangelical churches who like to proudly claim to be tradition-free. We, in this ministry, like to keep it simple. We follow our Lord's instructions, and we handle ourselves in a scriptural manner while we celebrate. Now, let me explain, and this is all you'll need to know to celebrate with us. Let me begin with some scripture, always my favorite place to start. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here in Matthew 26, we find the authorization, if you will, for the bread and the cup, collectively known as the elements. So when you celebrate the communion, you are to have a set of the elements for everyone participating with you. That is, you'll have some bread, and a cup with something to drink. Those are the elements. Now, although we are not going to get too hung up on the details of the elements, here are some guidelines. First, the bread. Now, forget tradition. I know some of you are used to the little round wafers that are given out in some churches. Now, I'm not a big fan of that, but I don't want to get into why I'm not a big fan of that, into what I'm calling this mini lesson. Plain old bread is fine. That's what scriptures say Jesus used, so there's no reason to be too elaborate. However, having said that, let me say that when we in this ministry partake, we use unleavened bread. You maybe know unleavened bread as matzah or matzo or matzo crackers. The reason why we use matzo crackers or unleavened bread is because we can be certain that's what Jesus ate that night. The story of what we today call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper 
took place during the celebration of Passover and all devout Jews, and trust me, there was no Jew more devout than Jesus. All devout Jews ate only unleavened bread during the celebration of Passover. Jesus and his disciples, you can be sure, only had unleavened bread on their table that night. So we use unleavened bread when we partake in the communion. Now you may ask, is it a sin to eat leavened bread during the communion? Bread that has yeast in it. Is that a sin while celebrating the communion? Well, in my opinion, no. And the, the, the devil and the church, they want us to worry about that. They want us to overly worry about that, but let's not. Remember, the whole point of the communion is to remember him, not just some silly list of ingredients. Let's just make a decision on the type of bread and then go with it because it's just bread. Again, tradition may want to tell you something different, but it is just bread. The important part in all of this is what the bread represents. And Jesus told us what that is. Quote, I'm reading from scripture again. Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So that's the bread. It's a symbol of his body, the body he gave up for us. So what's next? Matthew 26, 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here is where there's been a sustained battle for centuries. Again, our aim in this lesson is not to argue, fuss, and fight. So, let's just keep this simple by, again, telling you what we believe and the manner in which we partake. First of all, at our communion celebrations, there are two elements. Now, some church tradition doesn't stress the two-element thing. Some church tradition says that all you need is the bread, but that's not what Jesus said. And so, we have both elements, the bread, which we've already discussed, and the cup. Now, what about the cup? What should be in it? Well, as we just said, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his friends when all of this took place. So we can be relatively certain that the cup he chose to share was one of the ritual cups of the Seder, which is the traditional, highly ritualized Passover meal. We've covered the Seder in previous lessons. And if you remember that lesson, you'll know that there are ceremonial cups of wine. So most likely there was a cup of wine, and I use that term loosely, there was a cup of wine at the table, and that was the cup that Jesus used. That's why most of the time when you do receive the cup at communion, there's wine in it. However, it's 
not unusual to be in a church that simply uses grape juice and even sometimes water. Now, let me state my position on this. It's exactly how I feel about the bread. I don't believe it matters what's in the cup, so don't let the contents of the cup distract you. You are celebrating a memorial with symbols. That's what the elements are. They're symbols. Now, down through the centuries, again, I will say this has been hotly debated, and we're not going to reopen that debate here. In this ministry, we use, listen to me, plain old fruit juice, either grape or cherry. Now, don't let that fact cause you to judge my stance on the use of alcohol. My feelings about alcohol have nothing to do with our choice of this communion element. This is why we use non-alcoholic fruit juice. This is listen to this. In order to produce alcohol, some of you know you will most likely use a type of yeast. Now, this is, of course, an oversimplification. Please don't email me and write me letters trying to straighten me out about the fermenting process. Most commonly, fermentation of alcoholic beverages involves the introduction of yeast. Now, yeast is leaven, and since there is to be no leaven whatsoever in the homes of devout Jews during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by the way, which follows the Feast of Passover, because there was no leaven in the homes at that time, during that celebration, we believe that Jesus probably didn't hand out alcoholic wine. Alcoholic wine is technically leavened grape juice. Now, can I state that categorically? Can I categorically say that Jesus did not hand out wine? No, it doesn't say. And what do I say every time the Bible doesn't say something about something? It's not important. But I will say, as I did before, I don't think you're sinning if you do things differently or think things differently than we do when it comes to the contents of the elements. Once again, I say you decide what you use and then put, listen to me, put the whole matter out of your mind. Which leads us to the last very important issue we'll discuss with regard to the communion. This time, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself. The King James says, let a man examine himself. This is the revised version. Let a man examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eateth and drinketh, eateth and drinketh judgment unto himself, if he discern not the body. Now for many centuries, there has been fear 
around this table, and then eventually fear gave way to apathy. First we feared the table of the Lord, then we didn't care. That's where we are now, where people don't care, and neither of those two states is acceptable. Let's cover the fear. Now, to be honest, I get it. I understand the element of fear. The above passage that I just read is rather ominous. It speaks of being guilty of something. It speaks of judgment. There are, these are things that you and I and every clear-thinking Christian shrinks from. We don't want to be guilty. We don't want judgment. We want to do things right. And then throw in the very next verse, For this cause many among you are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep, meaning die. Throw that verse in, and then you have a full-scale panic every time the pastor says, Time for communion. No! Do we really think that's what Jesus intended when he left this for us, for us to be fearful when we come to the table? Now, we can, and we have spent entire lessons on this, but let me set your mind somewhat at ease. Paul is saying that if we drink, eat and drink unworthily, now that word is an adverb, unworthily, that's why I keep saying it like that, unworthily is an adverb. Adverbs describe actions, not actors. This is not unworthy, this is unworthily. Adverbs describe an action. Paul says, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, then you're risking those things that he mentioned. The judgment. Being guilty. If you partake in an unworthy manner. Now, I don't want to go into too much depth here about what those things are that he says you're risking, because the point of this lesson is to go over how to make Jesus happy when you celebrate the communion. In this lesson, we're not focusing on anything other than what God expects out of us. Because frankly, if we do what he asks, well, then it won't matter what happens to us when we do otherwise, right? God says to eat and drink in a worthy manner, so let's just do that. Well... What does that mean? Fortunately, Paul tells us, and he tells us in plain, easy language. Paul says that the unworthy manner is eating and drinking, not discerning the Lord's body. The unworthy manner is when you don't discern the Lord's body. A worthy manner, therefore, is discerning the Lord's body, right? Does that make sense? Now, you, maybe you're saying, well, what does discern mean? What does that mean? Well, let's look at Webster's. Now, this is important. This is important to get to the basics, not only to avoid those negative ramifications of not eating and drinking worthily, but also because this sweet little celebration was given to us by someone we love, right? He told us to do this, and we love him. If you're 
dear granny asked you to take your shoes off in the house, you'd do it because you're because she's your sweet granny and you love her and you want to please her. You don't ignore granny, at least I hope you don't. You don't sit there and, well, should I take my shoes off or shouldn't I? I mean, how important is this? Is granny going to smack me in the back of the head? Is that really what you think about? Granny asked me. I love her. I'll do what she says. Why would this be any different? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You're going to find out in a moment that remembrance and discerning are the same thing. Now, according to Webster, to discern means to come to know or recognize mentally. It's that simple. That's the definition of the English word discern. It also sounds, well, pretty close to the word remembrance, don't you think? Real quick, Webster says, remembrance means the state of bearing in mind. Same thing as recognizing something mentally. They mean the same thing. Jesus wants you to remember him, to discern him, discern what he did for you when you go to the table. Now, one more time, forget for a moment what happens to you if you don't and just concentrate on how this is simply a request from someone we love. Jesus wants you to remember him. Listen, if we concentrated more on this, whatever this is as a relationship, this church thing, this Christianity, if we concentrated more on this being a relationship between two people, a lot of the silliness goes away. We cloud it with tradition. We, we make it foggy with all the silly things that we do and think and say. It's a relationship. You can get to the true meaning and intention of things if you just realize this is a relationship. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, I love you. That's what I'm going to do. Yes, there are things that can happen to me if I don't do that. Forget about that. Jesus said to do it. I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to remember him. He wants us to think about him. Now, whenever I take communion in a church, which is not very often, church is not a good place to concentrate on the things of God, and I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's true. Church is not a good place to go if you want to concentrate on the things of God. Now, most churches, there are some churches, sure. Most churches, no. Tell me, honestly, does it look like anyone is concentrating on Jesus at communion in church? Again, maybe some, but not very often, unfortunately. And that's partly why we celebrate communion with you through this ministry, either over the radio or through our web stream or now through these podcasts. We want you to have some control over your discerning environment. So when you partake, and the lesson again, I want to tell you, the lesson that follows this little intro, yeah, some, some little intro, the lesson that follows this intro 
is one in which we go to the table of the Lord. And I'm suggesting to you that if you want to partake, once we get to the communion in this lesson, I'm going to tell you it's not, it doesn't happen right away. It happens sometime during the lesson. This was previously recorded a couple of years ago. Sometime in that lesson, we go to the table of the Lord. And if you want to partake, then I suggest that you find somewhere quiet and without distraction so that you can commit your full attention to discerning and remembering. So let's wrap this up. It's already gone far longer than I had intended it to do. The lesson that follows contains a communion celebration, and if you want to join us, and you don't have to. You can just listen to the lesson. You can listen to the communion and how we do things. You do not have to partake if you listen. Just listen. But if you do decide to partake, here are some things to keep in mind. Number one, this is a wrap-up. This is a summary. Number one, have a set of the elements, that's the bread and the wine, for each person who will be participating with you. The bread will symbolize the body, and the cup will symbolize the blood. You, and what's in the cup? It can be wine, it can be juice or water. The one that will be in front of me will have juice. Number two, make sure you are in a place where you do not have any distractions, at least for the few minutes that we will be sharing together at the table of the Lord. Turn off your phone, put the little ones to bed, put the dogs upstairs, draw the curtains if you have to, just find a quiet, peaceful place so you can remember him. You got all that? The table of the Lord is one of the most lovely experiences we can have as members of his church. We will be getting into a communion message in just a few moments. The table of the Lord is a lovely celebration. If we do it right, without fear and without distraction, it can be something you look forward to time and again. Just make sure you show Jesus the respect he deserves and partake of the communion as he commanded, as he said, do this in remembrance of me. You've heard me say many times that I cannot understand the critics. Now, I'm sure they don't understand me either, but nonetheless, the whole thing baffles me. I find it simply impossible to believe that any objective, thorough study of Christianity, now let me say true Christianity, that is the true church, I don't understand how any honest and open examination of true Christianity can lead to anything other than the 100% solid, unshakable conclusion that it's based on the divinity of a real person. Now again, I, I must emphasize that this presupposes that any critical evaluation will be centered on Christianity's foundational documents, and by that I mean the Holy Bible. If you're going to focus your assessment of Christianity on anything else, well, your conclusion will be flawed. In fact, I believe that's really the only reason there could be any critics of Christianity. 
they're looking in the wrong place. Maybe they studied the history of the church, for instance, before they came to their erroneous conclusions. And if that's the case, then those doubts I can understand. Those criticisms I get. If the only or, or simply the predominant resource consulted was what has happened in the church for the past 2,000 years, the people, the leadership, the disagreements, the heresies, the greed, the torture, the hatred, the killing down through the centuries, then yes, I believe there would be plenty of room for misgivings and criticism, and I would be right in line with you. But that isn't a, a reflection on true Christianity. That's just what the human beings who have been playing at Christianity were like. It's not a fair nor accurate evaluation. If you want to know what God is really like, then you have to go to the only place where he himself has said you can find him. Holy Scripture. If you want to do a fair assessment of God's kingdom, God's redemptive plan, God's holiness, then you have to do that through Scripture. In order to find out what God is really like, to get an idea of what Christianity is really like, then you have to do that through the Bible. There's no other way a doubter can get a good idea of what God is up to, or even if he exists at all. Now, that's not our topic for today. It's, it's just an observation. And yes, we have spent some time in the past analyzing the validity of Scripture using generally accepted methods that you find in most literature-based, historical-based evaluation methods. Yes, we've done that. We've done that when attempting to highlight the reliability and the provenance of the Bible. But you know what? I don't think that's going to be necessary because once we get into this today, you're going to have a very difficult time doubting if you're currently a doubter. Now, let's read our text for today all the way through first, and then we'll come back and do a little digging. Actually, let me warn you, this is going to be a two-part series. We are not going to be able to finish this today. We will probably finish this next time. Anyhow, here we go. To the chief musician upon Ayala Shaher, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of people. 
All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them, and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation, will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him, and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. Now, as you know, Many of the Psalms have a title or a description or even sometimes what appears to be some sort of instruction attached to it. Something that separates the prose from the rest. Something that seems separate from the prose, auxiliary to it in some way. Now, scholars of course, being scholars and wanting to sound smart, have given these sorts of things in the Bible fancy, high-sounding names. For the Psalms, they say these are superscriptions and subscriptions. 
A superscription is one of these titles or descriptions or instructions that occur before the beginning of the relevant passage. And a subscription happens or is attached, you guessed it, to the end of the passage. The problem, however, is there doesn't seem to be any consensus of opinion on the purpose or meanings or even placement of these things. In fact, there's some doubt as to whether these additions are original or were appended at a later date. Now, no time to investigate or debate that here, but I do want to say something quickly about the superscription of Psalm 22. That was Psalm 22 that we just read. Psalm 22 is our subject for today and next time. At the beginning of Psalm 22, there is a superscription, as scholars call it, and it says this, to the chief musician upon Ayala Shaher, a psalm of David. Now, this first part, this superscription, seems to be some sort of instruction, obviously, to the person in charge of the music. It says, to the chief musician. Now, as you know, the psalms were sung or recited as part of the Jewish system of worship. Now, there is a tremendous amount of debate on what Ayala Sheher actually means. If you read some of the older scriptural study, they will say that Ayala Sheher is translated the hind of the morning. Now, hind in the old English is the same thing as a deer to us today. So the hind of the morning is really the deer of the morning. The older scriptural studies tell us that Ayelith Shaher means the deer of the morning. Now, those that ascribe that translation to the superscription, those that say Ayelith Shaher means the deer of the morning, say it's there to set the mood to sort of invoke imagery of someone being pursued or hunted like an animal. Now, I must say that sounds promising, but I'm really not convinced, and there's really only one reason why. Now, Psalm 22 is what scholars call messianic, meaning it's a prophetic psalm about the coming Messiah. Now, that's actually going to be clear as we move forward and get into the text, but for now, just take my word for it. And because this is about the Messiah, because this is a messianic psalm, the supposed Hebrew word, that scholars tell us means the deer of the morning wouldn't fit here because the Hebrew word that means the deer of the morning is feminine. It's a feminine noun. Can I say it would be unusual to say the least for an ancient Israelite author to refer to the Messiah using a feminine noun? 
Others have said it's more properly translated the strength of the morning. Some say it should read the morning sacrifice. And others claim it means the morning help. It's a difficult phrase to translate, obviously. Even if we could come to some agreement as to the literal translation, knowing what Ayelith Sheher translates to is only resolving a part of the mystery. It doesn't make it any easier. Knowing what it actually translates to doesn't make it any easier to figure out why it's there. Most of the time, you have to figure out what something is and why something is. Just because we translate the word to know what it is, that doesn't mean it helps us with the why. Now, some have suggested that Ayelis Shaher is referring to a musical instrument that had a sort of mournful sound. Is it then an instruction to the chief musician on how to properly accompany the singing of this psalm? Is this a way to, to regulate the voices that would be singing or reciting this psalm? Make it sound mournful like the Ayelith Shaher, whatever that is? It's not easy to say. There's even a scholar who actually postulates that Ayala Shaher is the name of a musical group, some sort of musical band that we don't know of anymore. Now, interestingly enough, the very well-known biblical scholar Adam Clark believes that this is actually the title of the psalm, but it doesn't really mean anything. He argues that it was common for the people of this region and time to give titles to poems and songs and the like that have nothing at all to do with the content, sort of like our modern jazz. I scratch my head at some of the titles of our jazz songs. Maybe that's what it is. Now, we aren't going to take any more time on this, but I believe that Ayelith Sheher probably indicates that the psalm was to be sung to the tune of some other song now long lost to us, much like we sing My Country, Tis of Thee in America to the tune of God Save the Queen. Again, my position on the title Ayelith Sheher is no more supported by the facts than any of the others. There's just no way of knowing for sure. But what I really want to point out here in this superscription is that it states that this is a psalm of David. Now again, in this psalm as in the others, that have this title, and there are several others that say a Psalm of David, there is some amount of controversy as to what that means. Is it or is it not a Psalm of David? Was this added at a later time, as some have suggested? Did David himself apply that title to every one of his Psalms before he, quote, published them? 
Now, Albert Barnes, another of the great biblical scholars, believes that it's quite probable that these titles, a psalm of David, were added later. I think he convincingly argues that it's not likely that if the author was David, he would have intentionally put that there. It seems, he argues, that that would be superfluous and unnecessary, and I say perhaps a little self-serving. And as I said, Psalm 22 and all of the others, this same argument would apply. Now, you may be thinking, as usual, John, you seem to be making a proverbial mountain out of a molehill. Who cares if David wrote it or not? Well, I suppose it isn't all that necessary to know who wrote it, except for the fact in this particular case, with this particular psalm, it may be important because this psalm seems very personal. It appears to be a personal account of some personal experience. There are a lot of I's, me's, and my's. Now, when a piece of literature is structured like this, when there are a lot of I's, me's, and my's, when something's written in this way, it's very easy to assume that the document is the record of the author's own experiences. It's very easy to think of it as an autobiography. Well, it's very important, in my opinion, that we do not come to that conclusion. We should not make that assumption here. It doesn't matter whether or not the superscription is original. It doesn't matter whether you think it is or not, as long as you don't assume that because it says it's a Psalm of David, that David is writing about something he himself went through. You can go ahead and assume that David wrote that psalm, which I believe he did, but I do not believe he was writing about his personal experiences. And I will give you a couple of reasons why. Using internal evidence, meaning stuff contained in the psalm that leads me to conclude that this is not a record of David's personal experiences. First of all, this psalm is expressing spiritual as well as physical suffering. And of course, that fact alone does not exclude the ancient king of Israel. We know, of course, that David experienced setbacks, challenges, and terrible persecution. And we also know that there are psalms that he wrote that expressed those experiences and those feelings as he went through them. But this psalm is actually notably different than those other psalms. When David was expressing how he felt through difficult experiences, remember the psalm where he was when he was in Gath. Those experiences he was writing about as a personal record, as an autobiography of what had happened. That psalm, for example, is structured different than this one. 
Now, of course, we don't have time to get into why I say that. I'm just asking you to consider that. Now, that's number one. The structure is different. It's not structured like the typical psalm where David tells us about his personal experiences. That's number one. Now, the second and perhaps most important and most relevant reason why I and most other scholars don't see this psalm as a reflection of David's own experience is that there are things mentioned in the psalm that we know David did not go through. Neither could those things be considered figurative or allegorical or symbolic of things that David went through. Now, rather than risk taking verses out of context, we will point out the examples of these things as we go along, some today and some next time. So let's begin our analysis of Psalm 22. Verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? I've told you in the past that I believe that every word that Jesus has ever said is important. Jesus, more than anyone else who has ever spoken, has to be careful with what he says. And I think Jesus learned that early on in his life, very early on. He learned very early on in his life the power of his own spoken words. Now, just as a side note, I do not believe Jesus came out of the womb knowing who he was. I do not believe that Jesus was a fully cognizant toddler. I do not believe that Jesus was walking around knowing that he was the son of God when he was a little baby. Yes, he was God, but he in his flesh actually had to come to realize that. And I know when people hear me say that, they gasp with disgust. Some may even say I'm a blasphemer and or heretic, but I believe I have scripture to back this up. Luke 2.52 says that, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, this verse makes it clear that Jesus at some point added to his wisdom and stature. Now, if he were born with full knowledge then this statement is, quite frankly, misleading, or at the very least, confusing. If Jesus had full knowledge of who he was, full, perfect, divine knowledge of who he was, what's with the statement of increasing in wisdom and stature? Makes no sense. It's obvious that he had to increase. Now, if you think about it, that's not so hard to believe 
given God's plans for Jesus and for redemption. You see, Jesus as our Redeemer, as our kinsman Redeemer, He had to be like us in every way. That's the reason He became a human being. Jesus could not have saved us from heaven. He could not have saved us as a divine being in heaven. He had to come to earth to save us. No time to talk about that. Those of you that know the law of the kinsman redeemer know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what the law of the kinsman redeemer is, there is a podcast episode that refers to it. Jesus, as our kinsman redeemer, had to be just like us in every way. And as such, he had to learn to operate within the limitations of being a human. He had to face the frustration of being a limited human being. He had to learn to grow. He had to learn to learn. Jesus had to know that it's painful to lack and to need. You see, because it's our lack and need that drive us. And it's in our human search to satisfy our lackings and needs that we very often get in trouble. It's a great source of temptation. And Jesus had to face all of the same temptation that we do. At some point, we all lack knowledge about something that faces us, and we need to satisfy or rectify that lack and experience the temp listen to me, and experience the temptations associated with that effort. That's part of the human experience. Therefore, Jesus had to increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Well, I believe part of that process, the increase in wisdom process, was the discovery of his true nature. He had to discover it. He was born with it, but was unaware of it. At some point, Jesus came to realize that he had power. And when that happened, he had to learn to control that power. And as a part of that, he learned that his words carried power and that he had to strictly control what he said. Now, listen, I know that I'm extrapolating beyond what Luke 2.52 or any scripture says, so you can take or leave it. But I believe that at some point, Jesus had to learn to be careful about what he said. Now, to take that just a step further, I will venture to guess, again, this is my opinion, this is my spin, and you shouldn't consider it anything other than opinion, but I also believe that Jesus knew that once his earthly ministry began, he knew his words would be recorded by someone. 
either in written form as he said them, which is possible, or at the very least, his words were being recorded in the minds of the witnesses who would someday collaborate with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to write the Gospels. Therefore, listen to me, this is all of this section comes down to this one point. We can be certain that even under the most difficult circumstances, not a single frivolous, unnecessary word fell from his lips once he set out on his father's business. Because he knew his words would impact the world. Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Exactly what Psalm 22 says. Precisely. Everything that is in the Bible has a purpose. Now, I didn't say I know all the purposes, but I do know that everything in the Bible has a purpose. Everything that's in the gospel has a purpose. Everything. Every single thing in the life of Jesus as recorded had a purpose. Now, everything that he did wasn't recorded. Not everything that Jesus did was recorded. The Apostle John told us that. And frankly, common sense confirms it. In fact, John says that if everything he did were to be written, then he figured, that John figured, that the whole world would not be able to contain the books that should be written, and he was there. He walked around with Jesus for at least three years. Some believe that he was a relative of Jesus and knew him before. Therefore, rest assured, the Holy Spirit took great care in deciding what did get recorded. He was meticulous about what was written. Jesus knew that someone was going to hear and record every word he said on the cross. Therefore, he would not have said anything audibly that was simply for his own purposes or even simply for he and the Father's purposes. I believe in his lifetime, there were plenty of things that Jesus and the Father discussed that were not intended for human ears. Why do you think that, John? Because of the number of times he went alone to pray. Many times when Jesus went to pray, he went alone to pray, meaning to Jesus, prayer was private. That's why he told us to pray in private. That's why I emphasize in this ministry that prayer is private. That I don't believe in public prayer. I certainly don't believe in recited prayer. That's another story. 
Jesus believed that prayer was private. Therefore, when we do have some record of Jesus's actual conversations with God, we can be certain that whatever was recorded was not private. In other words, if we heard whatever Jesus said, we were supposed to hear it. You cannot overhear Jesus. When someone is overheard, that infers they are out of control of the communication process. If I overheard you and your friend talking about your trip to the grocery store, you didn't know about that. Jesus knows everything. Especially during the time of his ministry. If we heard whatever Jesus said, we were supposed to hear it. We were supposed to hear it because there was something in that audibly spoken word for us to learn or to consider or to act upon. What I'm saying is, the mere fact that we have verse 46 of Matthew 27 should tell us that there is something important there. Let me read it again. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's a price to pay for sin. If you forget everything else I have ever said to you, never forget that. There is a price to pay for sin, and that price will be paid. Because sinners cannot escape the consequences of sin. Neither you nor I can escape the fact that we owe payment. We've all sinned. You know it. God knows it. And the Bible tells us that. All we like sheep have gone astray. Paul says we all fall short. We owe a debt. Everyone owes a debt. God's not just going to be a nice guy. God is a nice guy, but he cannot let sin go by. It must be paid for. It's a universal law. You may not like the fact that if you jumped off a building, you would hit the ground. Doesn't mean anything. Gravity is not being mean. Gravity is being gravity. God cannot live in the presence of sin. Sin must be paid for. It must be dealt with. There's no debating that. Because of our sin, we are debtors. Now we have two payment options. Number one, we can retain personal responsibility for the payment. Or we can confer payment responsibilities to Jesus. Either we pay for our own sin or Jesus can pay for our sin. That's the way God set up the payment process. There's no some other third thing. No matter what anyone tells you, 
Those are your only two choices. If you walked into the grocery store and started to write a check and they said, I'm sorry, no checks, please. And you continued to write the check and gave them the check and tried to walk out with the groceries, you'd be arrested. It is not an option to pay. Even if the person at the front door told you it was, if the person taking the money refused the check, it is not a way to pay. Either you pay for your sins or Jesus does. Either way, they're going to get paid. He's not going to turn his back. God is not going to turn his back on your sin. Any other option that gets discussed is man-made and is as such false and invalid. Now, the eternally mysterious thing about all of this is that the payment for our sin has actually already been arranged. And Matthew 27, 46 is a record of that. Hey, I thought we were covering Psalm 22. We are. It's just sometimes hard to decide which one to refer to because they both chronicle the same events. One just so happens to have been written a thousand years before the events described. The other is a record of the events as they occurred. I told you this was going to be fascinating. Matthew 27, 46, the record of the event as it happens reads, and this is Jesus on the cross saying this. Jesus is on the cross when we get to Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Payment for sin in part means separation from God. The wages of sin are death. Death is separation from God. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. It's a different kind of death when we're talking about the wages of sin. It's the type of death where the eternal part of us, the body is not the eternal part. You know that. The current body we have. The, the eternal part of us is our soul or our spirit, depending on how you want to look at it. The eternal part of your body suffers death when it is separated from God. That is a biblical description of soul death. The wages of sin are soul death. Payment for sin means death, which means separation from God. Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is the point where Jesus became sin for us on the cross and was separated from God as payment for sin. Don't ask me to explain it any further than that because I can't. Jesus became separated from God due to the sin he was carrying. And at that point, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As recorded in the gospel of Matthew and Psalm 22. And incidentally, the gospel of Mark. But we're focusing our study on Matthew and Psalm 22. Besides Mark 15, 30, 
for is nearly identical to Matthew 27, 46. So anything we say about Matthew 27, 46, for the most part, applies to Mark 15, 34. Now, the point I've been trying to get at for the past minute or two is that Jesus didn't just blurt out that statement as some expression of fear or pain or loneliness. He felt pain and loneliness, but he didn't need to say that for himself. He knew it. He said that for everyone else, including the angels and the devils, and you and me. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was verifying, he was declaring that the sin payment was in progress. That the soul death payment as wages for sin was in progress. Jesus was experiencing separation from God. Why hast thou forsaken me? He didn't need to say that for God to hear. He needed to say that for us to hear. Now he asked why, but I think he knew why. He wanted us to ponder why. He wanted us to ask ourselves and then come to the conclusion that God is separated from him because he was made sin for us and sin and God cannot be in the same room, so to speak. Therefore, the question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, was directed to God, but was meant for us to hear. Jesus was describing the environment of the payment of sin. Now, there's another reason why Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's another reason for that. Even under the tremendous stress of crucifixion, Jesus had the presence of mind to remind you and I that he was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus quoted the first verse of Psalm 22 to establish immediately that he was the one that Psalm 22 was referring to. Now, some argue that Jesus recited the entire psalm while on the cross. That's possible. We don't know, but we do know he recited the first Verse. Some say that he recited the first verse because that was a common thing to do to bring to mind that psalm for others to meditate upon. He said the first verse because that's what people did when they wanted you to think about the rest of the content. Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that those who were present would bring to their mind Psalm 22 that spoke of the Messiah. And Jesus wanted them to know he was the Messiah. That the separation from God was what the Messiah had to do in order to redeem all of mankind. You see, Psalm 22 had always been considered messianic. 
Every Jew, whether well-read in Scripture or not, knew that the Messiah would one day say, now I'm reading from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why has to, I know it's, it's, it's mind-boggling that they say the same thing. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Verse 2 of Psalm 22, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and the night season am I not silent. Now I know, listen, I know that you Christians may think that I just read Matthew 27, 42, or Mark 15, 34. I didn't. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, ancient Jews, had they not heard the word Jesus, may have thought I was talking about Psalm 22. I wasn't. That second time. The first time when I mentioned Psalm 22, you Christians may have thought I was reading Matthew 27, 46. When I was reading Matthew 27, 46, ancient Jews would have thought I was reading Psalm 22. They're nearly identical. By the way, and we'll get into this more next week, modern Jews have changed their mind. That's why I keep saying the word ancient Jews. Modern Jews no longer believe that Psalm 22 is messianic. There was a change somewhere. Ironically, that change happened after Jesus died on the cross. Coincidence? Maybe. Let's keep moving. Now, you will notice that the first part of Psalm 22, as I said, precisely repeats, but it also fills in the gaps of the gospel accounts of Christ on the cross. As a matter of fact, scholars will tell you that the description of a crucifixion in Psalm 22 is far more graphic than in the gospels. Now, interestingly, at the time when Psalm 22 was written, there was no such thing as crucifixions. They had never heard this. That Crucifixions were at least perfected by the Romans. It was the Romans who perfected crucifixions. They may not have invented it, but they perfected it and used it all the time. Someone, whoever wrote Psalm 22, knew nothing of the Romans. They didn't exist. The funny thing about the Gospels is the people that wrote the Gospels did know about the Romans, and they didn't describe a crucifixion because everybody knew what a crucifixion was like. No need to get into details. There is no further description of the crucifixion other than Jesus was crucified in the Gospels, anywhere in the New Testament for that matter. No need to describe it. When you said the word crucifixion, people like, oh, really? Like they knew what it meant. Psalm 22, the author of Psalm 22, not so much. For a thousand years, people were like, what is a crucifixion? Of course, the word crucifixion was not used in Psalm 22. I'm trying to make out, give you an, an ironic point. 
Psalm 22 accurately, and we'll get into that more next week, but Psalm 22 accurately describes a crucifixion. On the other hand, the Gospels do not. God's Word is really fascinating. If you don't think so, you're not studying hard enough. Let me catch back up again. In a very real way, a very remarkable way, Psalm 22 gives us access to the thoughts of Jesus as he was dying for our sins. Again, far more than we got from the Gospels. This Old Testament document gives us far more information about what was going on in the mind of the Messiah before they even knew who he was. When Jesus was made sin for us, God had to turn his back on him. The cry in the daytime and in the night season, as described in Psalm 22, was God turning his back on Jesus because he had to. He had to separate Jesus. He had to separate himself from Jesus because Jesus was made sin. That's Psalm 22 describing that. Psalm 22 is describing what punishment for sin is like. Psalm 22 is what you would have had to go through had Jesus not gone through it for you, had he not gone through it as you. The pain, the loneliness, the isolation, the bewilderment, it's all there in Psalm 22. Now forget the physical pain for a moment. This is a man in emotional pain. This is a man whose spirit is being torn apart and God wants you to know what it's like. The Gospels tell us that Jesus, when he cried out in that loud voice, wanted to make sure he was heard. Jesus wanted us to make the connection to Psalm 22. Jesus was putting a footnote on his suffering. See Psalm 22. You want to know what I went through? See Psalm 22. When he screamed, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was making a reference to Psalm 22 so that you could get the rest of the story. And what's mind-blowing is Jesus sent you back a thousand years to get a better understanding of what he was going through in that very moment. It's fascinating. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit want you to know the price of sin. They want you to know that it is that that awaits you. They wanted you to know that the, whatever is described in Psalm 22 is what awaits you if you don't accept the work of Jesus. Don't ignore this. Don't let this be some casual thing. If Listen, if you can't find sympathy for that dying man on that cross, listen, even if you don't believe what he's doing is helping you, at least you have to admire him. You have to love him, feel for him, because you know, he believes 
what he is doing is for you. You owe it to him at least to acknowledge that. But even if you're not able to do that, even if you can't pity him or feel anything for his sacrifice that he feels is out of love, look at what this might mean for you. Don't turn away. Don't let this be a waste. My God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. The sin condition has put him in agony. He's feeling the weight of what he has chosen to do. Now, at first glance, this may seem like a complaint. Let's read it again. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, I'm not silent. Is this some sort of protest against how God is treating him? Depends on how you look at it. I don't see it that way at all. I actually see this as a warning. The man on the cross, the man who is the sufferer here in Psalm 22 is issuing a warning. When you die in your sin, God will not hear you. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. If you persist in sin, you can pray all you want and God's not going to hear you. It's that simple. And that's not the first time we hear this. It's not the only time we hear this in the Bible. Psalm 66 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. These first two verses of Psalm 22 are giving you a picture of what the spiritual and emotional state of a sinner is. Jesus is experiencing death as a sinner, and Psalm 22 is describing it for you. One more time, Jesus was made sin, and he's reporting what that's like. But there's something more important than that. Verse 3, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. There's an answer. Theologians have titled Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross, but I think that's selling this beautiful gem short. You see, the cross is God's implement of wrath. And if all we had of Psalm 22 were those first two verses, then I suppose it would be appropriate to call it the Psalm of the Cross. But there's so much more here than a story of God's wrath. We also see God's mercy. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. Listen, God has said that he is not willing that any should perish. He makes it clear that he has kept the door open. He's made that clear in verse 3 and 4 of Psalm 22. Listen, we're sinners. 
We've established that. But God doesn't want us to stay sinners. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll hear that prayer. He'll hear the confession of the sinner. That's the prayer that opens it all up when you confess your sins and ask him to forgive them. That opens up all the communications between God and you. When you trust in God, he will hear you even when you cry in the darkness. The man on the cross wants us to know that. Now, as we continue on down in Psalm 22, we can see that the man on the cross is remembering what God has done. He's reviewing God's track record of mercy. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. He's recalling the promises of God because, frankly, he has to count on God's faithfulness. Listen to me. Jesus took an enormous risk. He went through all of this simply on the word of God. If God changed his mind or even decided to ignore what he promised, all of that pain, all of that anguish, all of that sacrifice would have been for nothing. But Jesus knew better. To him, it was no risk at all. In fact, the knowledge of that is what kept him going. So he said to himself, Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. It's a lesson for us. Listen, life can be difficult, and God never promised anything else. He didn't even shield his own son from the suffering that is unavoidable in the lives of humankind. It's just a part of the trip. I don't know why. It just is. Suffering is the lot of all who are born of women. Now, you can either deny that fact, which will get you nowhere, or you can complain, which will likewise get you nowhere. Or you can remember and then count on God's mercy to carry you through. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. All of his life, Jesus spoke of and counted on God's loving kindness. You know, and it could have been so easy now that he was suffering on that cross, all the spiritual and physical pain, suffering as punishment for sin. It could have been so easy to forget all the times that God had been there to comfort him. That time in the backside of the desert after fasting and being tempted of the devil, or the time that God broke through time and eternity just to encourage his son as he, as he was about to embark on his ministry by exclaiming for all to hear, especially Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
Jesus was remembering the times that God was there to comfort him. It could have been very easy, I repeat, to start complaining. God, this is painful. God, why did you do this to me? Why why have you forgotten me, God? Why are you making me go through this? But instead he says, you know what? Those that call on God, he delivers. Those that cry unto him, they're delivered. They trust in him and they were not confounded. Jesus was remembering that while hanging on the cross. This is something I need to hear. When trials and tribulations come, I wish my first reaction was to remember the times that God's helped me. Instead, I complain. I I accuse God of singling me out. I sulk and I act as if I'm ignored. But not the man on the cross. He didn't do that. He remembered God's faithfulness even while he was bleeding to death. All I would have thought was, oh my God, I'm bleeding to death. His thoughts were, thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. Oh, I wish I was more like Jesus. It wasn't as if he didn't know what was going on around him. He wasn't delirious. That would have been welcome. Delirious would have been the best possible scenario for Jesus. But God made him feel every bit of that wrath so that you and I didn't have to. God didn't spare one moment of the torment from his only begotten son. He withheld nothing. Verse 6, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. Once again, the accuracy of the prophecies of Psalm 22 are remarkable. To illustrate, let's switch over to the Gospel of Matthew. Now we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We aren't in Psalm 22. We were just a moment ago. Now we switch to Matthew 27, 39. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. They were being sarcastic. Can you imagine? And listen, Sarcasm is the most biting of all insults. And he was aware of it all. 
He heard it all as predicted in Psalm 22 and as recorded in Matthew 27, Psalm 22, 9 again. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. He's saying, I owe my life to you, Father. I know you won't abandon me now. You wouldn't have taken me this far. You wouldn't have said you were pleased with me. You would not have sent your angels to minister to me in times of anguish. I must remind myself of these things. I cannot look at my situation in isolation. I, like Moses, must see your ways and not just your acts. That was the failure of the children of Israel. They couldn't see beyond their trials to the purpose of God in those trials. Verse 10, I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Jesus trusted God from the beginning. He can't stop now. Neither can we. When we get married, don't we promise our fidelity to one another in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health? Don't we pledge that? When we marry another human being, why don't we extend that same promise to God? Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Can you imagine any more helpless posture than being nailed to anything. Listen, it's one thing to be tied to something with a rope. That's tough enough. It's not impossible. It's not easy either. But it's not impossible to free yourself from being restrained by some sort of rope or similar device. But what if the restraining devices are your own limbs as in a crucifixion? One of the things that makes crucifixion so cruel is the only way to relieve pain in one part of your body is to inflict it in another. The person who's crucified is sort of placed in such a position that even breathing is difficult. The arms are fastened in such a way that inhibits the proper and free functioning of the lungs. That's just one of the torments. Well, breathing is not optional under any circumstance. So when the body that's hanging on the cross needs to breathe, it can't just jump down off the cross and take a breath. It must work around its restraints, which again are its own limbs. It is being restrained by its own limbs. So the only way to breathe is to excruciatingly adjust the restraints. And by that, I mean push up on the nailed limb, the nailed feet, basically brace the bones against the nails, get into a more favorable position for breathing, take a quick breath, and then bounce back down, which is also excruciating. And then do it all over again in a moment or two when the next breath is required repeated countless times until death comes. Now I realize this is not a pleasant description and I don't want to cause any trauma to any of you, but you should know what you've been rescued from and who rescued you from it. 
Verse 11 again, be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. No one is going to help you to breathe when you're on the cross. All you can hope for is mercy and you're not going to get mercy from anyone until that sin question has been dealt with. Be not far from me for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. This is such a cruel way to die that it should give you an idea of how ugly sin is. Sin is crucifixion ugly. Sin is crucifixion of the Son of God ugly. And we take it so casually, don't we? We take pride in being a bad boy. We brag about being naughty. Listen, I'm no fire and brimstone preacher, but meditating on these things brings that out in me. The story of the crucifixion makes me hate sin, more so in myself than in others, but I hate your sin too. Because this is what it did to the one I love more than anyone in the universe. I hate me and I hate you for what we put him through. When I think of Jesus on the cross, I want to be better. I know that's not going to stop him. That, did, that wasn't going to prevent him from going to the cross. It just makes me want to be better. I want you to be better when I think of Jesus on the cross. Verse 16, For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And by the way, that never happened to David. David wouldn't have written this about himself because he's never had pierced hands and pierced feet. Verse 17, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Regularly, I feel like a failure in this my calling, but never so much as I do now. Now, I literally could keep you here for hours more and still not adequately tell you about your Savior's pain. You and I could sit here until the sun sets and then comes back up tomorrow and still not exhaust the depth of his suffering. The only thing I think would stop us would be our tears. Eventually, all we can do is 
stare at the cross. We want to hate it. We know it's where he died. But really, instead of hating the cross, we should hate what sent him there. That's why we have Psalm 22. Psalm 22 has been given to us so that we can focus our energy, our efforts on seeing to it that his suffering wasn't in vain. Listen, I know this has already been a long lesson. I know this has been emotionally draining. At least I hope it's been. But I do want to go to the table of the Lord right now. I think we're in the perfect mindset for it. We've been thinking about him and what he's done for us. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. This was the scene just a few hours before the setting of Psalm 22. And believe me, Jesus knew Psalm 22 inside and out. He knew that it applied to him, and he knew its fulfillment awaited him. As he picked up that bread and as he broke it, no doubt in his mind he was thinking about the pain he was about to endure. Take the bread in your hand and lift it. Look past its physical properties and look to its spiritual meaning. Jesus said that this represents the pain he was willing to go through for you and me. This broken bread symbolized what his body was about to endure on that cruel tree. Now take the bread in full recognition and gratitude that it was broken so that we may live. Do it now and thank him for it. Can you imagine the amount of blood? Listen, if you've ever gotten a cut on your head, you know that Breaking the skin on your scalp results in a lot of blood flow. Those cruel Roman soldiers placed a thorn bush on his head. And believe me, I'm sure they didn't just place it there gently. I would venture to guess that they set it violently on his head and then probably gave it a good whack in an unnecessary attempt to make sure it stayed. That crown wasn't going anywhere. It penetrated his scalp, and there's no doubt in my mind his head was covered in blood. He was bleeding to death even before his hands and feet were nailed to the wood. And don't forget the whipping he received. Those weren't silk ribbons like we see in the Olympics. The whips in those days were made of some sort of coarse leather, which alone would have been enormously painful. But just to make things worse, to make sure that the convicted got the message, there were little pieces of bone interlaced in those strips of torture. Listen, 
you can be certain that Jesus was covered in blood from head to toe and back to front before he even got to the cross. The sad truth is it couldn't have been any other way. The purpose of his life was to die. His purpose was to eliminate the sin of the world, and God had said previously that the payment for sin was death. He also said, the life of the soul resides in the blood. Therefore, when the blood poured out, death resulted. The old Levitical sacrifices were expressions of this truth. 1 Corinthians 11.25, After the same manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. All of that blood flow, all the blood gushing from his body was the visual representation of his life gushing out, of his life flowing out. Raise the cup, see the symbol of the blood, and bring to your mind the thought that he bled profusely for you. He suffered for you. He died for you. Take that cup and remember him as he asked you to and thank him for it. We're not done with Psalm 22. We'll pick it up next week. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.